Well, good morning, everyone. My name is J.B. Hickson with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio beneath the sky, tucked away under the tall timbers of Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us. Today is Friday, December 22nd. Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, just what a great time of year. Uh, my family and I are enjoying uh, some well-needed time away, just trying to uh, rejuvenate and refresh after a very busy year and really looking forward uh, to 2024. But I'm so excited about the guest we have uh, for us today. I'll bring uh, Lee on here in just a moment. But Lee Brainerd is going to be uh, with us. Uh, he probably needs no introduction to our audience. Uh, but uh, for some of you that may not know him, I'll let him kind of give you his background in a moment. But I've gotten the chance to to get to know him over the last uh, year or so at different conferences. And we really connected down in Dallas at a pre-trib and went to dinner and just had some good discussions. And I just uh, think the world of Lee and especially besides just being an all-around great guy, uh, he is really a, a quintessential researcher doing cutting-edge research on uh, the, the history of the rapture in the church. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. I'm calling it debunking, rapture debunking. Again, you know, on this program, we've talked about that a couple of times previously, and it comes up uh, periodically in discussions, but there's nobody better uh, to address uh, the tired, old, seemingly endless but ridiculous arguments of those who think the rapture is not uh, taught in church history. No one better than uh, Lee Brainerd. So I'll bring him on uh, in just a moment, but uh, a couple of quick announcements and then a scripture passage to start the show. Uh, first of all, once again, Merry Christmas to everyone. Uh, we've just had some great shows recently. A lot of these we recorded over the last week or two in anticipation of being out of the office uh, for a family Christmas trip. Uh, but we've had some great shows on with Alex Newman and Don Perkins and, of course, World Events Update with Randy and I think Shane's been on a couple times, and uh, just so many great uh, discussions. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to go back and listen to those, Pat Wood, uh, of course, David Fiorazzo, um, my friend Russ Harbin. Uh, I mean, it just goes on and on. Leo Homan was on. Uh, we even had Bob Ulrich on yesterday. I hope you had a chance to listen to that. Uh, he shared his testimony of, of, of a life of miracles, and what a great conversation with uh, Bob Ulrich from uh, Prophecy Watchers. But anyway, I uh, just encourage you to, to stay in touch with us through notbyworks.org. Uh, we appreciate your prayers and your support. Lots of free resources available there in the way of podcasts and videos. And then if you click on the Not By Works store button, it'll take you to our online store, which also has a section of free resources uh, that uh, you do not need a credit card for. You just put them in your card and it lets you check out with no cost. And those will be emailed directly to you. Lots and lots of great articles, documents, just Bible study uh, opportunities for you there. Uh, so check that out. And then finally, uh, before we get to the scripture, I uh, just want to remind you that our podcasts usually are videoed for our premier subscribers. So if you have not subscribed to our premier uh, membership, I encourage you to check that out while you're on the online store. Uh, we provide all kinds of exclusive content and special updates and uh, periodic Zoom sessions live that you can ask questions of me or one of our guests. I'll have to get Lee on one of those premier Zoom sessions at some point. I'll see if I can twist his arm. Uh, but uh, 
Uh, check that out. It's a small monthly fee, uh, or you can pay annually. You can cancel at any time, and I think you'll find it's well uh, worth it. Uh, of course, the podcasts are always available in audio format for everyone. We post them wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Not By Works Ministries. Uh, but if you want the video version uh, to see as we interact with our guests, uh, you can uh, check that out at the Premier uh, subscription on our online store, notbyworks.org. Well, one of the passages of Scripture that I thought I would kick us off with because it is so relevant to understanding the significance of the doctrine of the rapture that the Apostle Paul first taught in in its doctrinal fullness in uh, his letters to the Thessalonians around 51 AD um, during his uh, second missionary journey. Um, of course, Jesus Christ himself references the rapture. The first ever mention of the rapture was in the upper room, just hours before he was betrayed and arrested in the garden. Uh, but Jesus talked about it in John chapter 14. But uh, the Lord revealed it through the pen of the Apostle Paul in all of its rich fullness in 1 Thessalonians. And twice in 1 Thessalonians uh, 4 and 5, uh, he says this in chapter 4, verse 18, at the end of his uh, treatise on the rapture, he says, therefore, come Comfort one another with these words. And then again in chapter 5, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. And, you know, therefore, whenever you see a therefore, you should ask, what's the therefore? Therefore, you know that if you've had some of my hermeneutics classes. Um, and in this case, it's there because Paul has just talked about the, the beautiful rescue of the rapture before the great day of the Lord's wrath. And so uh, it truly is a rescue of sorts, not a rescue from trouble or difficulty or from hard times or from danger. For 2,000 years, the church has gone through trouble and danger. And if the Lord tarries is coming, we here in America who have been so blessed in our uh, country's brief history uh, to avoid some of that, we're likely to face that as well if the Lord doesn't come back soon. So by no means is the rapture Nobody that I know of that, that really teaches the rapture, and I'm and I hobnob with some of the top scholars, such as Lee Brainerd, in the field. But nobody teaches that the rapture is going to rescue us out of this world before we have to suffer. That's a, a straw man argument. It's not accurate. Uh, but the Bible absolutely does talk about the comfort of the rapture in that it rescues us before Daniel's 70th week, that great and terrible uh, day of the Lord. But uh, my friend Lee is uh, is just a, a great guy. You can find out more about him at soothkeep.com, soothkeep.com. That's S-O-O-T-H-K-E-E-P dot info, excuse me, not dot com, dot info, soothkeep.info. And uh, that's Old English for Truth Fortress, and it is a wealth of truth, let me tell you. He's got a YouTube channel as well, Soothe Keep. Uh, you can buy his books on Amazon. Uh, he's going to be uh, with me in Orlando and several other great uh, guests. I don't know about you, Lee, but I love going to the Prophecy Watchers conferences just to hear the other guys speak. I feel like the the turtle on the fence post. How in the world did I get up here, you know? Uh, but uh that's in Orlando in February and March, late February, early March. He'll also be with Mondo Gonzalez and Pete Garcia in April of next year at a conference. Uh, he's also got a fiction series of books uh, that I, uh, the Planets Shaken series. I uh, encourage you to check those out as well. But Lee, thank you so much for taking time. You're coming to us from a hotel room in Dumas, Texas, the old panhandle of Texas. You better hold on tight because those winds will blow you away, my friend, even this time of year. So welcome to the program. Well, JB, it's a great blessing to be with you and your audience. Uh, we are living in some exciting times. 
There's a lot of issues the truth to contend for. The gospel is under attack. The Bible is under attack. Uh, Israel is under attack. The church is under attack. And the issue that we're talking about today is the rapture of the church. And this is under serious attack. Amen. Yeah, it really is. And so just to kind of frame the discussion for our audience, uh, those who do not believe in the rapture because they don't have a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, they spiritualize the biblical text, they fall and pray to replacement theology and amillennial thinking, uh, they are still out there, despite some of top scholars in the world, including yourself and Dr. Tommy Ice and others, uh, demonstrating the, the fallacy of their alleged debunking, uh, they're still out there suggesting that the rapture is this newfound uh, idea that was made up by a demon-possessed guy in the 1800s, and that anybody who believes in the rapture is, is, is teaching a novel view. Uh, tell us why that is patently false. Well, there's really three levels we can address this at. First of all, if anyone actually looks into the history of J.N. Darby and Margaret MacDonald in that era where modern dispensationalism arose. Now, the pre-tribulation rapture did not arise at that time. That's where the modern form of dispensationalism was consolidated and, and spread. Darby came to his understanding of the rapture in 1827 by studying 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the Greek of that passage, and he was a fantastic Greek scholar. The Greek of the passage convinced him of the pre-tribulation rapture, which is kind of ironic since that passage is one of the key anti-pre-trib rapture passages. And I'll just say right off, out the gate, those who think that passage teaches a non-pre-tribulation rapture, they don't understand the passage. That's the problem. They don't understand it in English, and they don't understand it in Greek. Now, the second level is if anyone will actually do any kind of serious research in the subject, brothers like William Watson, who has gone to be with the Lord, have published a book, Dispensationalism Before Darby. Many, many instances of people from the rise of the Reformation till Darby's time that held to a pre-tribulation rapture. Not always exactly the way that we hold it, but the theology was in its infancy, simply the fact of a pre-tribulation rapture. And then the third level is what we'll be looking at today, my area of study is that the early church has dozens and dozens of instances of pre-tribulation rapture passages. To me, you have to poke your eyes out. You have to close your eyes to these facts to hold to the lie that Darby started the rapture. Yeah, absolutely. And and to be clear, uh, you're you're uh, you know I don't want to put you on too high of a of a uh, platform here, but you, you've you done pioneering research on documents that nobody else has ever really translated or studied from the Church Fathers that clearly uh, address, uh, way back then, hundreds of years ago, a two-phased return of Christ. Am I right? Once for the Church and once all the way to the earth? Absolutely. My research in the area started a few years back when I was working on my uh, research for my book, Apostasia, relative to the question in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, whether apostasia is a reference to apostasy, uh, or the apostasy in the last days, or whether it was a reference to the departure of the church in the rapture. While I was doing that research, I came across a rapture passage in Ephraim the Syrian that I did not recognize. And I, I went through the books on my bookshelves. I went through some known websites that list the known patristic passages. 
And the only one that I could find from Ephraim the Syrian was the one that Grant Jeffries had discovered in uh, 1994 and had one of his uh, ministry associates translate it from the Latin into the English. And so that was the only Ephraim rapture passage that we had. So I set aside my apostasia research, and I started going through all of the um, Ephraim, the Syrian literature that I could find. It was on the TLG website, Thesaurus Linguae Grecae, which translates thesaurus, uh, the thesaurus of the Greek language. And that website is basically a repository for everything extant from classical Greek um, and the heroic Greek of like Homer and Hesiod, all the way up to Byzantine Greek 11th and 12th centuries. And it's virtually, virtually everything in that whole 3000 year period is, is there. So it, it's a wonderful place to uh, find Greek resources. I ultimately found over 30 rapture passages in Ephraim the Syrian alone, and I found 10 that were crystal clear. And that's the ones that Mondo and I covered two years and a few months ago in uh, when I visited with him in uh, Oklahoma City, well, Edmond, actually, at the Prophecy Watchers headquarters. And that's what kicked off my research in into the Church Fathers. Yeah, and Mondo, uh, who who our listeners definitely know, he's a uh, uh, you know well known prophecy speaker. He's uh, one of the faces of uh, Prophecy Watchers with uh, Gary Stearman. Uh, he's quite an academic as well. That's one of the things I love about him is that he's such a great affable, nice guy, and, and just a great speaker and a host. He's just the kind of guy you love to have interview you. Uh, but he also, he's got an incredible sharp mind. And so, uh, yeah, I've listened to those interviews and uh, appreciate him uh, kind of helping uh, you get this uh, message out there. Now, um, in my uh, teachings and some of my uh, writings, I've talked about this very issue, not nearly to the scholarly level that, that you guys have. Um, but one of the documents that comes up a lot is the fourth century document, Pseudo-Ephraim. Is that the same thing that you're talking about here? Yeah. See, the difficulty we're facing, there's a lot of contention of whether the Ephraim documents, especially the Greek ones, are legitimate Ephraim documents or whether they're from Pseudo-Ephraim. Now, if they're legitimate Ephraim, they would have been written around the mid-fourth century, like from 330 to 370 or so uh, A.D., and if they're pseudo-Ephraim, they claim that they're written 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th centuries. Well, really, as a Bible-believing, dispensational evangelical who believes in the pre-trib rapture, it doesn't really matter to us whether this is pseudo-Ephraim or Ephraim historical, because if it's Ephraim historical, we have his clear, clear rapture passages in the 4th century three centuries uh, after the time of Christ and the Apostle Paul, and deep, well, actually relatively deep, we're a full century deep into the, well, basically the overwhelming firepower of the replacement theology, which was trying to push uh, the pre-tribulation rapture and trying to push premillennial theology out of the church. But if these are written by pseudo-Ephraims, because uh, it, it wouldn't be just one guy. They're, you know, they're talking to seven, eight, 10, 20 of these guys who were who loved Ephraim and they were imitating him. Well, here's the difficulty. If this is pseudo-Ephraim, that still validates that the, the legitimate Ephraim held the pre-tribulation rapture. And now we have a whole bunch of people believing in a pre-tribulation rapture in the sixth, seventh, eighth centuries 
that would be a nightmare for anyone that was theologically and historically consistent. Because what would you rather have? One man that's a pre-trib rapture testimony in the fourth century, or five, eight, ten guys in the following centuries that were pre-trib testimony? Yeah, I mean, not only that, I mean, that's a great point. Uh, if you understand how pseudo-Ephraim documents came about, it actually is strengthens the the argument. But not only that, even if they were uh, documents written under a pseudonym, um, it still shows that the lunacy of the argument that the rapture was made up in the 18th century, because these guys are 6th, 7th, 8th centuries. Uh, you know, these documents, no matter who wrote them, you've still got historical extant evidence of a pre-trib rapture. Let me read you one uh, uh, a statement. Uh, now, I've got it dated, and I, this could be wrong. Uh, I've got a great resource in you now that I can check with every time I talk about this and make sure that my facts are straight. But I've got it 373 AD. But regardless of the date, this is a quote from Ephraim. All the saints and elect of God are gathered together before the tribulation, which is to come, and are taken to the Lord in order that they may not see at any time the confusion which overwhelms the world because of our sins. We Amen. ought to understand thoroughly, therefore, my brothers, what is imminent or overhanging. Uh, I mean, again, so do you recall offhand roughly what where that date's from? Yeah, well, that would have been in that general area that you mentioned. Okay. I don't know if we know the exact date of any of Ephraim's literature, okay. but um, that was the era in which he was writing. Yeah, so still, we're talking, you know, 350 years, 400 years after the Apostles. Uh, this is post-origin, I would think, right? Yes. Uh, and around the same time as Augustine. So you're right, the church was really in the throes of this allegorical uh, understanding of Scripture, this this kingdom now concept, and 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 so forth. And yet, you still have this this remnant, this thread uh, that runs all through church history, as you've demonstrated in your research uh, of people teaching and believing in a pre-trib rapture. So that's why I call this discussion today debunking rapture debunking, because you get all these you know internet talking heads out there, these guys that really know just enough about eschatology to be dangerous, and they they parrot and regurgitate what these other false teachers are saying out there on the internet. And and it's been debunked, and it's frankly embarrassing that uh, that people would continue to make those same arguments. It just shows a an utter lack of the ability to really do research, or in the case of some you know high level scholars who are still out there criticizing the pre trib view. I think it shows a lack of integrity because I think they know better, don't you? Oh, I do. And the issue that you just touched on is really critical: prejudice. The, um. Ignorance can be fixed all day long by truth, by facts. Uh, and I have all the time in the world to deal with people who just need more information. They need questions answered. But when it comes to prejudice, that is the one thing that is able to withstand the truth. That's the one thing that's nearly invincible. And one of the, the key things that we need to have in our heart as part of our spiritual warfare in the last days is that we have a teachable spirit that we are being, we're willing to be corrected by the scriptures, by the facts of history, by the facts of grammar. 
Yeah. I mean, Einstein, I have this quote in one of my more recent books, uh, famously said, condemnation without investigation is the height of ignorance. And, oh, man, that's good. I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I I see it all over the place. And the exact quote, that's kind of what it has become truncated and paraphrased as, but his exact quote is, uh, there is a principle, uh, and this, by the way, was uh, the, the earliest that we saw this uh, uh, repeated, uh, but, uh, or, or, you know, mentioned in this form, that there is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is a proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance, and that principle is contempt prior to investigation. So, you know, that's exactly, I think, what we have going on here is people dismiss the rapture with an imperious wave of the hand, acting like anybody who believes in that is crazy. Don't you know that came from a demon-possessed girl named Margaret MacDonald? And which, by the way, I'd like you to talk about that because she, you know, she uh, did not even, uh, you know, that's not even what she was really teaching, you know. Uh, that's but, exactly right. But, uh, yeah, I mean... Um, I get emails, I'm sure you do too, from people, uh, you know, as our ministry has grown over the last few years, we get, you know, just a wider reach. Um, I got one this morning uh, that was really, uh, it just breaks my heart, it makes me stop and pray in that moment. Uh, somebody uh, was responding to one of our podcasts, I don't even know which one, but evidently I made a comment in there about Biden and his being part of the Roman Catholicism and so forth. And this person said, what are you talking about? Get your facts straight. Quit knocking the Catholic Church, you know, or you will be judged. And, and I'm going, okay, you know, there's just that's just people that are, uh, as you said, prejudiced. They have their axe to grind. They, they just don't want to hear the truth. And of course, the truth is you're not saved by keeping the seven sacraments. You're saved by grace through faith alone, by trusting in Jesus Christ who died and rose again for your sins. And he's the only one who can give you the gift of eternal life. You have to trust in him. That's the gospel Amen. in a nutshell, Amen. you know. So um, that's not what Roman Catholicism teaches. But I, we have good friends and, 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 and acquaintances within Catholicism, and we understand that you know they uh, they in some cases love the Lord, but they they're in error when it comes to what matters most, which is uh, the gospel. But uh, talk to us a little bit about um, you know Margaret McDonald and and that whole tired old uh, sufficiently debunked argument. Well, her own written testimony about what she believed is available both in the biography that was uh, the autobiography of her two brothers and in some other sources that have excised it out of that biography and put it on their websites. So she gives her own testimony. She came to her rapture position in 1830 by a revelation, which she believed was from the Holy Spirit. And men of discernment know that this was from a lying spirit pretending to be the Holy Spirit, which is a great danger for professing Christians today yet. Well, at any rate, in her testimony, she received a rapture where the church was going to go through three and a half years of great tribulation and then be raptured prior to a short window of wrath. Well, it doesn't take uh, even a sixth grade education to understand that this is not a pre-tribulation rapture. This is a would be the equivalent of the modern pre-wrath rapture. Um, and the same rapture position was held by the entire Irvingite movement. That gospel that they understood and their understanding of prophecy came in through some of these prophetesses, particularly Margaret MacDonald, and, and through a few prophets. Uh, and these, like uh, Richard, or um, 
Robert Baxter, and then these uh, doctrines spread through the entire Irvingite Church, which is also known as the Apostolic Catholic Church. But this was not a pre-tribulation rapture view, and anyone can go read the history of the Catholic Apostolic Church. They can go read the biographies of the leaders in this whole work, like Brother Irving, and they can uh, read uh, Baxter's narrative of facts. They can go read Margaret MacDonald's own literature, and they're going to see over and over and over again, it was a pre-wrath rapture. Yeah, but it's much easier for them just to cut something from a, a web page that criticizes pre-tribbers like you and Tommy Ice and, you know, all, all of the great guys, you know, Walvert and Pentecost and Ryrie and those guys uh, than it is to do your own research. So what I want to know is why, how, if that's the case, how come these uh, these guys don't turn their guns on the, the pre-wrath guys? How come they're not claiming they got their rapture from a demon-possessed girl in the 19th century? That, I mean, they. I'm going to talk to some of my pre-wrath friends and ask them to provide some cover for us. I mean, come on. Yeah, well, what's interesting to me is it reminds me of um, Haman being hung on his own gallows. Mm, you yeah. frame an argument to get rid of the Jews, uh, and, and then those gallows, you get hung on your the gallows that you raised. Well, that's exactly what's going on. They, they raise the argument that this the pre-trib rapture came from demons, and therefore it can't be true. But yet it was the pre-wrath rapture that came through demons. Now, are we going to be consistent with our argument? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's wrong on so many levels. Yeah. Shakespeare would say they were hoisted by their own petard. So I love that phrase. So, yeah. I mean, uh, so the fact is we've got lots of uh, documentation throughout church history about the pre-trib rapture. And I want to have you mention maybe uh, a couple of those here in a moment. But just to be clear for our audience— um, what matters most in formulating doctrinal beliefs is the Bible, right? Amen. And, and so even if we didn't have a historical evidence of these teachings, the, the key issue is what does the Bible say? And the Bible very plainly teaches a rapture. It's the Greek word harpazo, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It means snatching up or catching up. I think one of BDAG's uh, uh, definitions is rescuing from danger or harm, uh, that kind of thing. And so uh, snatching out of harm's way is the idea. Uh, we see it referenced in, and just about every New Testament author talks about it. It's a running theme. It goes to the distinction between Israel and the church. God's program for Israel is different from God's program for the church. We we weren't part of the first 69 weeks of Daniel. We're not going to be part of the 70th week. Uh, twice in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Bible promises that the church will be uh, taken away before the, the wrath of the Lord. The 70th week is the wrath of God. We could go on and on and on, but there are many passages that speak to the rapture. Titus 2.13, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, you know, 1 Thess 1.10 and 5.9, uh, Galatians 1.4, Revelation 3.10. I mean, we could go on. Uh, so it's a thoroughly biblical doctrine. Uh, that's our only basis for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. The only reason we even bring up uh, and and praise God for for men like you who've done such yeoman's work on uh, on really diving into the ancient texts for us. The only reason that discussion even arose is because enemies of the rapture are claiming falsely that this is a new doctrine that only was invented in the 19th century, and this is so patently false. Give us a few examples, if you will. Yeah, well, let me just pull up. And I'll just read a couple here out of Ephraim. The first one that I found in Ephraim was 
the 55 Beatitudes, I was just doing my apostasy research, uh, and I was in a passage that mentioned uh, the Greek word apostasia, and, and it was in reference to apostasy in the last days. And I, I read this passage, blessed is he who unceasingly remembers the fear of Gehenna and hastens to sincerely repent with tears and groans to repent sincerely in the Lord, for he shall be delivered from the great tribulation. Now, I immediately noticed two things. One, there's kind of a works-based element that's in much of the early church. Uh, any Anybody that reads in the early church, particularly those fathers that were influenced by monasticism, seems a little bit of a performance-based element in the understanding of the gospel. Thankfully, in the modern church, we're largely set free from that, not entirely. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that stood out was, he shall be delivered from the Great Tribulation. Not delivered through it, not delivered in it, delivered from it. Yeah, I mean, that's well said. And I, I love that you pointed out, uh, you know, how these were not endorsing everything these fathers said. They were uh, they were wrong about a lot of things. They were very heavily influenced, as you said, by monasticism and, and Roman Catholicism over the years. Uh, I deal in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, which was the first book I wrote 20 years ago now uh, on uh, called Getting the Gospel Wrong. I dealt with a performance gospel. I have a whole chapter on that. And I show how, you know, its tentacles... Uh, even going back to the Reformation days of of Calvinism and Arminianism, both, uh, which I believe both paved the road back to Rome in, in terms of a works-based gospel. They just do it from different angles. Uh, yes, I agree. Are all, are all over the place. They're all over the church today. Um, and and that's uh, and that's too bad. But yeah, I mean, you can't get any more clear than what uh, what you just read. And what era was that from? That would have been the 4th century again with Ephraim the Syrian, so he was writing around the mid-4th century, which would be from like 330 to 370 AD, somewhere in there. Amazing, amazing. I remember uh, doing uh, some research in my um, PhD studies. This would have been back 2000 to 2004 uh, under Dr. Mike Stallard, who I think you know. Uh, he was my mentor, great uh, pre-tribulational scholar, and uh, we had to do some research into some uh, 12th century documents. I can't think of the name. I think it was, or maybe it was a little later than that, but um, Emil Gear. that's who it was. Do you know the name Emil Gear? I've heard the name, but I'm not familiar with his work. Yeah, I can't remember. I'll, while you're talking, I'll look up and see if I can benchmark a date. But, but he's another example of a church uh, a father uh, that, you know, uh, late church father that talked about a two-phased coming uh, of Christ. And so, you know, the rapture, I guess we should define it because we know these podcasts get forwarded and linked up and people, and so we may have some listeners who who don't understand what the rapture is. The rapture is when the Lord catches the church up to meet him in the air uh, prior to the, the, the seven-year tribulation that will precede his second coming. So when we say a two-phased return of Christ— we mean how he's going to come once in the air to meet, you know, and we're going to meet the Lord in the air. The dead in Christ rise first. There's a resurrection. There's a rapture, uh, and so forth. And then we are in heaven during the tribulation period. Then we come back with him, riding on white horses, Revelation 19, and help establish and inaugurate the kingdom on earth. So that's what we mean by a two-phase second coming. So if, as are the opponents of the of the pre-trib rapture uh, suggest. This is a new document, new new doctrine, and no one's ever taught it. All we have to do is show evidence 
that people in hundreds of years, even a thousand years ago, 1500 years ago, in the case of Ephraim, uh, believed in two returns of Christ, once for the church and once for, for Israel. What, what other uh, quotes do you have there? Well, here's one from Ephraim the Syrian in a work called On the Fathers Who Have Completed Their Course. And we read, when we see the saints in glory flying off in light in the clouds of the air to meet Christ, the King of glory, but see ourselves in the great tribulation, who shall be able to bear that shame and terrible reproach? So again, we see two things here. We, we see a group of professing Christians who are going to be escaping the great tribulation, and then he he's portraying himself with this monastic pseudo Humility is one of these who wasn't living good enough, and he's going to left, be left behind, and he's going to have to go into the Great Tribulation. Wow. So I just, I just say, well, okay, here we clearly have a pre-tribulation rapture testimony, and sadly, the Gospels got a little bit of that monastic pseudo-humility and the monastic performance gospel, but we just overlook that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, the, keep the focus in mind here, which is simply to demonstrate, uh, again, not that we need to, because I think the Bible is very clear when when we rightly divide the Word of God and handle it correctly, it, it's very clear. Uh, but just as a counterpunch, if you will, to those debunkers out there who are, are saying things that they either willfully know to be untrue or are just, you know, willfully ignorant, either one. Uh, this is just a, a counterpunch to that, that, look, the, the history is replete with examples of uh, people throughout church history who understood correctly, even though they may not have understood everything correctly, uh, the clear teaching of the New Testament on the rapture of the church. So Amen. what do you What's interesting, too, about Ephraim the Syrian is he was amillennial. Now, in our day, we associate amillennialism with the rejection of the pre-tribulation rapture. You you could probably look the whole world over, and you would have a hard time finding even one or two people that are amillennial that believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. But in the early church, there were a number of people who, even though amillennialism had overtaken premillennialism, and they would gone to the allegorical methodology uh, all over the place, there were still a few people who, because of plain statements in the Pauline writings, were still holding to a pre-tribulation rapture. Yeah, that, that's a great point, uh, Lee. Uh, by the way, if you're just joining us, we're talking to Lee Brainerd. Soothekeep.info is his website, one of the leading researchers today uh, on uh, the, the the doctrine of the rapture in church history, but he's written a, a, several other books as well. I encourage you to uh, check him out at his website, soothekeep.info, or his books on Amazon. But but that's a, that's a really great point that um, and I forget what your great point was. It just escapes me. What were you just saying? Well, we just it was interesting that in the early church, there were people who, who had already succumbed to the error of all millennialism yeah. and rejected a literal earthly physical millennium, and yet were still holding on to a pre-tribulation rapture and a great tribulation in the last days. Yeah, I, my uh, thoughts got away from there. My brain is fried from just so many podcasts lately, kind of queuing up the pipeline for our two-week uh, family trip at the end of December. But what I was going to say is that's a great point that we're not suggesting that you know dispensational pre-tribulationism, as it's now kind of referred to in theological circles, was the 
predominant view that, you know, 90% of people throughout church history held. No, no, not at all. In fact, there's a principle in Scripture called the remnant principle that that demonstrates going all the way back to creation and, and from Genesis forward, that God most often moves in the remnant of people, not the majority. And we're by no means suggesting that this was a, a predominant or even a prevalent view. I mean, obviously, for a thousand years during the Middle Ages, believers couldn't even read the Bible for themselves without fear of retribution. They were they were being heavily influenced by uh, by Roman Catholic thought and amillennial thought, um, and uh, especially ever since Augustine's City of God, it just kind of put the church on a separate trajectory for its understanding of God's plan of the ages. And so, of course, uh, dispensationalists are even to this day still in the minority. I mean, the vast majority of, of the church today is going to be, you know, either a millennial or this resurgence of sort of a, a post-millennial reconstructionism. Uh, but, you know, we are in the minority. But that, again, is beside the point. The point is, what does the Bible say? Amen. I know we've had some great discussions uh, recently over over lunch and dinner, and just uh, you know sitting at the table at uh, at the pre-trib conference, uh, and and it's great to just be able to sit down and 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 with a Bible on our laps and just talk about the Word of God and compare Scripture with Scripture, uh, and that's really the way it should be done. Uh, but unfortunately, when when uh, your opponents and those who you know are mocking you bring up these tired old arguments in an attempt to debunk your view. You have to, you have to, you know, fight fire with fire and prove that they're that they're wrong, and that's what uh, you have done and others have done. Um, now, speaking of you know biblical text, one of the things that I really enjoy talking about with you and others is apostasia. Now, you've written kind of the preeminent a book on that. I wrote a small journal article probably fifteen years ago now on apostasia. Folks can get that at our, the free section of the notbyworks.org store. Just click on the store button and then free resources. Um, but I've been, you know, an advocate of the of the rapture, you know, the departure view in that passage for uh, quite some time. But in discussions with you and with um, uh, Mondo and others, I, you know, it's definitely not something you can be emphatic about. There is a lot of evidence to support uh, the the view of a spiritual apostasy of, of some kind. So kind of give us the rundown on your take on that, because I love for our listeners to hear alternate views and study the Word and come to their own conclusion. Well, it, even though I disagree with Brother Andy Woods on the subject, Andy did the, the topic a great justice when he stood his ground and said, listen, this says the apostasia. So this can't be talking, whatever it's referring to, it can't be a generic thing that's happened hundreds and hundreds of times. So it, it can't be referring to just some generic apostasy at the end of the age when we've had dozens of apostasies already. What's going to make this stand out as the apostasy if we've had dozens of apostasies you can't distinguish it from? And so he's, he, that's part of his thinking to why he's considering the departure. And, you know, the first time I, I heard that argument, I thought, you know, this is pretty cool. I was a little skeptical about it because of my knowledge of the English translation history, uh, because of my knowledge of, of the Latin of Bible translations, and because of my knowledge of, well, reading Koine Greek for four plus decades. But I, I couldn't write it off. And so I, I went and I, I read his book, and I, I read a number of other journal articles and uh 
um, uh, magazine articles and website articles on the subject. I consolidated all that information so that I had all the arguments that were being made for the rapture departure understanding. And then I just went and I did the research to gather a full amount of information on each one of these topics. And ultimately, I concluded that there's good reason to believe in uh, that the departure there is a spiritual departure in the last days that's associated with the Antichrist. And that this departure in the context, it's associated with the day of the Lord, it's associated with the Antichrist, associated with the 70th week. And so it's a very specific departure. I concluded, and, and Mondo came to similar conclusions from a different angle, that this is talking about the, it starts, the departure starts with Israel having a covenant forced upon them by the Antichrist, which is a covenant with death and an agreement with Sheol, and that this culminates in uh, the nation, two-thirds of the nation, um, basically being lost in their sins, receiving the Antichrist, worshiping the Antichrist. Thankfully, there's going to be one-third of the nation, a tremendous revival, according to Zechariah 13, that aren't going to submit to this nonsense and are going to trust the true and living God. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's a powerful argument. I had Mondo on uh, several, maybe a couple months ago, two or three months ago, and we talked about it. And I think he has collaborated with you a lot and kind of sharpening his thinking on that. And he's got an article uh, in the Prophecy Watchers, uh, Watchers magazine uh, that I think addresses that, if I'm not mistaken, just recently. Um, but just in case our audience is not familiar with the issue, a Second Thess 2 is a key rapture passage, no matter how you take apostasia in verse That's 3. That's right. Absolutely. And Paul is, you know, he begins by saying, now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord and, and our being gathered together to him, clearly a reference to what he had talked about in his first letter in chapter four, um, to meeting the Lord in the air. Um, and then he, he basically is addressing a false notion that his readers had come uh, to believe that they were already in the day of the Lord, that the day of the Lord had come, that they were facing that prophetic wrath of God. And uh, as he had told him twice in the first letter, you're not going to be here when the wrath of God happens. Uh, he said, look, uh, you know, I, I want to remind you. So he's addressing that they, they can't be in the day of the Lord unless a couple of things happen first. One of them is the man of sin is unveiled, uh, the, the Antichrist. And secondly, is this apostasia, again, with the definite article, the apostasia. And I think from a theological perspective and a, uh, you know, a synthesis with other scriptures, uh, the uh, argument and the view that you guys are expounding, which is also distinct from sort of the traditional commentary view that you get in most commentaries, uh, according to which uh, oh, there's going to be this great end times apostasy in the church of people departing from the faith, and when that happens, you know, uh, you know that you know the day of the Lord is near. That that really has never made sense to me because it's too uh, subjective, too unquantifiable. But when you pin it to the covenant, uh, you know, Daniel nine twenty seven, and and this formalization, if you will, of Israel's departure from the Lord by entering into an agreement with the Antichrist, um, that really makes a lot of sense to me. So that's one of the things I love about theology is that it's a lifelong process. You know, I, I used to teach when I was teaching full-time in all of my theology classes that, uh, in fact, it was always a question on the final exam, is theology a product 
or a process. Amen. I love and, that. And it's a process, not a product. I mean, we sometimes think in terms of, you know, here's Chafer's eight volumes or Ryrie's basic theology or Paul N's, you know, handbook of theology. And we think we're done. We've, you know, it's, it's complete. It's all nice, neat and tidy in this book. And now I can rest on my laurels the rest of my life. Not at all. Uh, I'm sure you'd be the first one to agree that it's a lifelong process of comparing Scripture with Scripture, iron sharpening iron, and someday, you know, at the rapture, uh, or if we go the way of all flesh, if the Lord tarries is coming, we'll we'll see things clearly, we'll understand better, uh, but uh, right now, we've got to stay in the Word. Amen? Amen. I'm sure looking forward to Emmaus Road 2. Point oh in heaven when we all get to sit down with the Lord Jesus and get our eschatology straightened out. Amen. Do you think we'll know him at that time, or will we be confused like the the disciples on the road to Emmaus? Well, uh, yeah, we'll we'll probably know him definitely. But I think it's going to be a very interesting experience because there is a. I mean, I think there's definitely brothers today that, by and large, are very very strong, and and they're not wrong on any major point. There's a number of brothers that way, Amen. but every one of us have points where we our understanding for one reason or other is is fallen short of the scriptures and it's going to be a wonderful f- sensation to be sitting with the lord in eternity and is walking us through the scriptures from genesis to revelation and our hearts going to burn with this and say, oh man why didn't i see that yeah yeah no doubt yeah well said and that's a great segue to what i want to tease real quick before we wrap up today's uh, program. Uh, you know, I, I can give you some personal examples of after, you know, 35 years of, of formal ministry, you know, my first uh, paid ministry job, if you want to call it that, was when I was 19, uh, even before I, you know, finished college. And uh, and so I've been at this a long time. And if you look in my notes, just ever since computers came out, which was about 10 years into my ministry when I began using a computer. Before that, it was just hard files in a file cabinet. Uh, I've got notes and and folders that are labeled, for example, uh, parables of the kingdom old, parables of the kingdom new, you know, uh, James old, James new, because over time, as I've studied the scripture, grown in my knowledge, uh, you know, gone to seminary, studied the original languages at the highest levels, uh, I've realized that some of the understandings that I've had were, were not accurate. And so, I'm, you know, I'm not afraid, and we should never be afraid to refine. We like to call it refinement, not changing, right? Theologians don't like to change their view, but so let's let's at least call it refinement, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And and that's just the way it is. And right now, I'm working on some exciting refinements. Ever since uh, my Spirit of the Antichrist and Spirit of the False Prophet books came out, uh, as it relates to angelology. So, and this is what I want to talk to you about, maybe on our next program. But I had had long held the traditional view that fallen angels were demons, are demons, and it was a pretty simplistic understanding of evil celestial beings. But right. the more I've d- done a deep dive into this this wor- world of the Luciferian conspiracy and Satan's co-conspirators. I've realized, you know, the Bible actually has quite a bit more to say about these evil celestial beings that fall into different classes, and it's maybe a little bit overly uh, simplistic. And one of those uh, areas is the Nephilim. Yes. And I've always held uh, the the view that the Nephilim were the product of these uh, uh, this unholy incursion where fallen evil angels uh, cohabited with women and produced this race of Nephilim. Uh, even though most of my colleagues for years thought that was not 
possible. Uh, I learned it uh, in at Dallas Seminary. I had a Hebrew professor uh, who I loved. I don't agree with him on everything now, but he's a super nice guy, Bob Chisholm, big Yankee okay. And uh, he, we used to have just, in fact, I took some electives from him because I just really valued his knowledge and his teaching style. But he had me do an exegetical on Genesis 6. And honestly, I'd never studied it. I probably held to the you know the 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 Schofieldian view from his notes because I was raised on the Schofield Reference Bible, but I did not really ever contemplate could these actually be a hybrid race of of, of beings? And but doing that exegetical and letting the text speak for itself, it was it was incontrovertible to me. And so I've held that view for a long time. But where I'm refining it with the help of a lot of experts uh, who who such as yourself and uh, Mondo and L.A. Marzulli and others. Uh, uh, you know, is in this notion of kind of what happened after the flood, the bloodlines, uh, those types of things. So uh, tell us just briefly to kind of tease our audience about your research into the Nephilim and, and kind of what you've been doing in that regard. Well, to me, the where my mind really started to wrap around this subject and realize that we have a backstory here that's behind the story of the redemption of mankind. And we don't have to understand that backstory to be saved or to have a good soteriology, but to really see the whole picture of God's plan on dealing with planet Earth, we need that backstory. Hmm. And this backstory has a couple components in it. And the first one that really kicked in for me was in Genesis, in the flood account, where Noah was pure in his generations. And I just always, as a young believer, just assumed, oh, that just means he was living a holy life. He was the most godly man on the planet. Well, that might have been true, too. But first of all, the word for pure here is not the normal word for moral purity, like holiness. And the word for generations was in the plural, which is unique. I mean, it, otherwise, you just say, well, he's the most holy man in his generation. So this spurred me on to, to ask questions, to poke and prick the minds of, of godly men who were more knowledgeable in the subject than I was. And it, I, I was forced to conclude that there was polluted bloodlines. And, and I don't can't say it was the only reason for the flood, but a significant reason as part of the flood was to remove the polluted bloodlines. If you don't remove the polluted bloodlines, then you're going to have a very greatly reduced number of people that can be saved in the program of redemption. And you're you're risking the messianic line itself being tainted with this Nephilim bloodline. Well, once that piece was set, well, now we need to have the beginning and the end because now we got a middle piece. Well, in Genesis 3.15, we see the tension between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now, the seed of the woman is God manifest in human flesh. To have a corollary here, we have to have something similar with the seed of the serpent. Mm -hmm. This can't merely be a human being who's really, really ungodly. That wouldn't make the corollary. It wouldn't make the connection, wouldn't make the parallel. We need to have a human being who's God with a small g manifest in human flesh or, or mingled in human flesh. Mm -hmm. And so this here in Genesis was not only a prophecy of the coming of God manifest in the flesh, man's Messiah, Jesus Christ, it was also a prophecy of the coming of the Nephilim problem. Yeah. And 
the second implication out of this takes us all the way to the end, because there is a seed of the serpent. I believe he's going to ultimately be the Antichrist. Yeah, and uh, the first time I'd really thought about that, and this has been such a fascinating journey for me, and I'm still right in the midst of it. You know, I'm still riding that Pacific Coast Highway around the curves and Big Sur and just enjoying the sights and the sounds, uh, but was when Ryan Peterson spoke a year or two ago at uh, Prophecy Watchers. And of course, have you had a much chance to interact with him at all? I've, I've chatted with some brief conversations at a few conferences but that man must never sleep because ah. he is on the run. I know. And he's an attorney and uh, he doesn't do this full time. But yet his book, The Final Nephilim, really makes that argument. And what's what's really interesting, and I know we're, we're out of time here, but, you know, it was such an eye opener to me that I've had a lot of fun going back and talking to some of my longtime friends and colleagues who I know are not nearly as open to the whole concept of Nephilim as, as I am and as I expound upon in my in my books, but I'll ask them, well, in Genesis 3.15, why does it say seed of the serpent? And just the look on their eyes is the same look I had when it first sort of jumped off the page. The the deer in the headlights, like, oh! Exactly. It's like, oh, yeah, now that you mention it. And of course, most people and most commentaries will just say, oh, it's just a rhetorical device to sort of uh, counter the seed of the of the woman, which we know is a reference, of course, to Jesus Christ, and really a veiled reference to the uh, to the virgin birth, because the the seed, the Zerah, is not ever from the woman. So it's clearly a, I think, a veiled reference to the virgin birth. But they go, oh, it just you know Moses wrote it that way under the inspiration of the Spirit to just sort of reflect the antithesis of that. But he wasn't meaning it literally as a literal seed of the serpent, because, of course, everybody knows that's impossible for the devil or any of his angels to somehow produce an offspring. But, you know, then you read on just three chapters later, and you find out that's exactly what happened. So I I don't know. I, I you know, I'm still working through that. I still probably lean more toward the Antichrist being a full human. But, man, it's 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 really very plausible to think that he could be a hybrid, uh, but we'll have to talk more about that uh, next time. That's uh, You are really uh, a wealth of knowledge when it comes to that subject as well. But any closing thoughts, uh, Lee, before we wrap up? I would just like to encourage the people out there, when you come to prophetic subjects, whether it's the Nephilim, whether it's the rapture, there's a lot of questions that you probably have that are not getting answered, and maybe you can get a little frustrated as you go through the subjects. I just want you to take hope in this one thing. Even if you never understand these subjects clearly, if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got a beautiful, beautiful future coming. Uh, you don't have to understand the pre-tribulation rapture to go up and miss the tribulation, and you don't have to understand the Nephilim and the Antichrist to escape those problems. I just want to encourage you with that. Amen. Praise God, Lee. What a great way to end uh, the way we started with comfort one another with these words. And it is a great comfort. And and yes, thank the Lord that perfectly accurate doctrine on all points is not a prerequisite for eternal life, or we would all be doomed. Amen. Amen to that. Uh, but uh, the, it's a free gift by grace through faith. And as we think about Christmas uh, here coming up in just a few days, uh, we just want to once again reiterate the greatest gift of all, what Paul called the indescribable gift. 
is when God sent his eternal son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to the earth uh, to put on human flesh, to live a perfect, holy, sinless life, to take our sins and the sins of the whole world upon him when he paid our sin debt at Calvary. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and he offers freely to all the gift of forgiveness and eternal life if you'll simply trust him for it. So I hope you'll do that today. Uh, I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. Thank you, Lee, again for joining with us. We'll connect after the holidays. And uh, I tell you what, I have a feeling we're going to be having a lot of conversations on the MBW podcast because uh, I just really appreciate all that you have to offer. And uh, of course, we'll see you in uh, in late February in Orlando. Uh, we'll, we'll be there. Will your wife be with you? That's the plan, brother. That's I'm looking plan. forward to the time. Amen. You'll get to meet uh, some of my family too. Wendy, you've already met Wendy, but uh, my daughter Brooke will be there. My son Landry, Faith, or I mean Abby, uh, and my granddaughter Zoe. So we'll we'll be there in the midst of a three week uh, ministry trip at that time to one on either side of the of the Orlando conference. But thank you and thank you everybody for uh, for joining us today. Again, Merry Christmas. You can check out our website at NotByWorks. Uh, dot org. And uh, once again, check out that premier membership. It's not for everybody, but if it's something you think would be a benefit to you, we'd love to have you be a part of, of that group. So God bless you, everyone. And we will talk again soon.